2: All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now. Please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly.
3: Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Um, Welcome to the show. Seated. Um, We have a great show for you today. We have um, courtesy of the Miami International Book Fair. We have Emily Parker, and she is the author of Voices from um, she's the author of Now I Know Who My Comrades Are Voices from the Internet Underground and this is a, I think probably the most important internet related book that came out this year and um, it's a, it's going to be a fascinating discussion with her and um, in the second half of the show we have a, a friend and um, award winning um, content creator um, Obi Scott Wade who's, um, who currently has a Hit show and a new book, and he's going to tell us about both um, in the second half. So, um, and today is International Human Rights Day, uh, which is kind of ironic since um, the headlines today aren't quite in accordance with that. But um, without further ado, I want to um, welcome Emily to the show, and um, let's have a great discussion about. Now I know who my comrades are. With us today, we have Emily Parker who's the author of
4: now i know who my comrades are voices from the internet underground and um emily has a, a very unique background um she actually has experience in cuba in china um she speaks mandarin and she's worked with hillary clinton in the state department and is now at the new american foundation um she's been an editor with the new york times and uh all around um, incredible background, but uniquely dealing with repressive regimes and the Internet. So, Emily, um, I'm really thrilled to see your book, Um, thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
4: The one thing that seems the the most dangerous weapon for a repressive regime is something that fits in the palm of your hand. You really hit the nail on the head that, you know, basically, you know, the, these governments fear the internet and, you know, they're going to make some efforts to control it, but, you know, getting something that's so readily accessible with such a sizable population you know, it, exactly. its such a futile task.
5: Exactly. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think as we've seen all over the world, even governments who try really hard to control the flow of information on the Internet, they're never completely successful. They can be moderately successful. They can censor, they can block, they can repress, they can surveil. I don't want to downplay what governments do to control the Internet, but it's never 100 percent effective.
4: Yeah, I mean it is interesting. I mean, just you you hear about the you know, for example, the Great Firewall of China.
5: Yeah, yeah. And, yes.
4: and I remember reading you know the the mouse. There's a great article about was the the way when he escaped. Just the cat and mouse game that went with censors, and so they they quickly adopted code names for for referencing him in social media, and how you know in a matter of hours that code name would be captured. By censors, and they would have a new one. And I guess, um, ironically, you know, Wei was this um, Chinese dissident who escaped from house house arrest. Um, mm. And right around the time when, in, around the time when China, ironically, had aired The Shawshank Redemption, and and so one, eventually, after they started, you know, uh, blocking all the other code names, one of the code names social media adopted was Shawshank. And um, actually, had the opportunity of, of explaining this to Tim Robbins that, uh, um, you know, Shawshank was actually censored in China. And he kind of thought that was really cool.
5: That's so funny. Yeah, for some reason, there's several mentions of, of of the Shawshank Redemption in my book. Several Chinese bloggers reference it as, as being this kind of inspiring film. But anyway, yes, you're absolutely right. I, I think Chinese netizens have been incredibly creative in getting around government censorship. And writing in code is just one of those ways because there are these automatic filters that – um Chinese authorities use to weed out sensitive terms. You know, certain terms are not supposed to appear online. So what Chinese medicines do is they'll purposely misspell words, or they'll insert Roman letters into those words, or they'll insert an asterisk into those words, or they'll write in code. An example that I often use is um, June 4th, which is the anniversary of the 1989 Tiananmen crackdown. June 4th is a very sensitive term on the, on the Chinese internet. So what do people do? They write May 30th May 35th. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then of course, the sensors catch on to that, and then they just find another way to say it. So, it really is a cat and mouse game. And then, even for the great firewall of China, there's ways to get around that, too. You can get around it via using a proxy server or a virtual private network. And so, even though Twitter, for example, is blocked in China, there definitely are still Chinese people on Twitter using it pretty actively.
4: And... Um and so, in, in, in approaching this book, what is it that you wanted people to to? What are, you, what are you trying to convey? What do you want want people to understand about where we are today in those repressive regimes? Is that is the internet the sign of hope? Well, I
5: people to understand the psychological impact of the Internet on individuals who live in authoritarian regimes. I think often we talk about this really big phenomenon in these very abstract terms, like we're talking a, like a video game, you know, the state, right. the people and who's going to win and who's going to lose. And I really wanted to show how individuals had been completely transformed by this phenomenon. So that was just the most, on the most basic level, telling the human stories behind this, this technological revolution so to speak. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, I think when we talk about the power of the internet in authoritarian regimes, we talk a lot about freedom of speech and freedom of information. And I actually don't think that's the right way to phrase the issue. The internet is really powerful in authoritarian regimes because it promotes freedom of assembly free or freedom of virtual assembly. It's, yeah. it's The internet allows people to gather with other people and to find other people like them. And authoritarian regimes are very nervous about this kind of collective action, about gatherings of critics. And so that's where the title of my book comes from. I asked a Chinese dissident about 10 years ago why the Internet mattered in China, and he said, because now I know who my comrades are. It's like, now I know I'm not alone. I found people like me on the Internet.
4: And I think that that is the key thing, because when I've spoken with Chinese netizens, they said, you know, granted, sure, that they're afraid of some things they might say, they want to censor speech, but what they really want to stop is us from organizing.
5: Exactly. That's 100% right. And, and it's, it's far more sensitive to organize on the Internet than it is to just criticize, you know, authorities on the Internet. I mean, of course, censorship is wide ranging, but the worst thing you can do really is try to organize some sort of protest online. That's really, really a red line in China.
4: But at the same time, in Chinese social media, you have these like flash mob type things. Or they have this, this concept, what is it called, a, a flesh-eating mob? Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> (laughs) Well, that's
5: that's interesting. Yeah, that um, I I talk about that in in my book. um, And uh, that's an interesting phenomenon. That's basically where um, Chinese people on the Internet will decide that for some reason, justice has not been done, you know, or a lot of people in China do not have great faith in the rule of law. So they will decide to take you know, to, to execute justice themselves. And what it means is that they will find somebody that they have determined to be guilty and chase them down. And it's it's, it's a pretty dangerous phenomenon because, you know, justice should not, right. the, the Internet should not serve as a court. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> that,
4: it, 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 there's a certain law of the flies element to it.
2: And, yeah, I mean, uh, you, see
5: it, you see it in the United States, I mean, I, to a certain degree, where sometimes, you know, the Internet, people on the Internet will collectively decide. Something you sometimes see that and they'll collectively, yeah, it happens all the time. They'll collectively pressure somebody and they'll collectively decide a verdict. And, and that's obviously a, it, it, that would be better done through the justice system. But in China, you do have examples of that where they'll try to find an individual's identity and they'll actually go to locate that person. And it's it's you know it's not it's not always a very healthy phenomenon at all.
4: Now, one thing that struck me when when I was last in China was that uh, in. They said, you know, you you all talk a lot about the firewall, but you know, granted, sure, that that's the tip of the pyramid. You know, the big know the iceberg. You know, they they. Granted, yeah, there are certain things that they really don't want us really discussing. But if you look beneath it, there's tons and tons of things being debated at volumes sure. and. And in an engagement like there has never been in Chinese history before. And I imagine the same might be true in Russia and Cuba as well, Cuba to a lesser extent. And um, that's, you know, even with censorship, with the internet, you still start having robust debate, and that, that leads to something.
5: I think that 's one hundred percent true, and it 's funny because people ask me sometimes, well, when will the internet transform China? we haven 't seen a mass uprising, and, and I, I don't think that 's the right question. I think for the reasons you just said, the internet has already transformed China in the sense that there is a platform for discussion that just didn 't exist previously
4: yeah and although I mean we, we, you know we, we have Hong Kong, and you know, so the internet is starting to mobilize China, you could argue. But um, yeah, and actually, when I when I met with the Chinese, you know, the purpose was for us to just explain, you know, our our what's going on with our practice in internet law, and you know, basically their response was, you know, the day when that's our problem that we have to worry about, that's a great day. <laughs> you know, right now we just want to be able to do things freely and speak freely, and um, when the day we're worrying about spyware or spam or revenge porn, you know, take me out for a drink. Um, you know that would be a good day. Now, one one area you're um, a peculiar country of the three is Cuba, mm-hmm. and because Cuba has this history of um, using in, in neighborhood informants, you know those exactly. Block watchmen, mm-hmm. that that creates this weird kind of paranoia. And mm-hmm. does the internet transform that, or just does it just feed it even more.
5: That's a great question. In my view and in, uh, at least among the people that I spoke with, I think that the internet helped those people overcome their paranoia. You know, it's true that in, in in Cuba the sentence that I heard many times was you never know who is who. You never know who might inform on you. It could be your neighbor, it could be this guy who works in the cafe. Because of that citizen informer network, it was unclear who the informer would be. They don't have they all don't all have the same face. And so for the bloggers that I met, they were people who decided that they were going to say what they really thought and they were going to talk about Cuban life as they saw it. And they weren't they didn't start out to being dissidents. They weren't talking about overthrowing the regime or anything like that. They were just complaining about their economic situation or the rule of law or whatever. And But but it, for them, the internet, it was the first time that they felt that they had a place where they could speak freely without worrying about what other people thought. And so, of course, once they went online and once they put their names online and once they put their photos online, their surveillance increased and the pressure increased. And yet, they, they described the themselves to me as feeling more free you know it was basically this decision that i'm not going to be afraid of this paranoia anymore i'm not going to be influenced by this paranoia anymore and i'm just going to say what i think and and so i think for them that having that place where they felt that they could speak freely was it was a transformative experience
4: I'm, I'm tempted to create a, a, a kind of a, a, a blog for Cuban dissidents, um, whatever happened to Fredo. Um, but it get, getting to Russia, um, and, and you, when you hear stories about cyber Russia, it's actually more the stories of, you know, the, the basically depression in the Russian economy, you mm-hmm. know, causing all these people to become hackers. Um, mm-hmm. I actually had we had a gentleman on our show talk about really the emergence of what's become a a cyber mall for cyber crime. That's interesting, a, interesting. And, and so, you know, what it, what what is your finding of the spirit in Russia?
5: well so I don't focus on on those hackers too much in, in in my book that's an that's an interesting question i I looked at more people who are using the internet to try to demand transparency or demand accountability and you know in the several, in the few years um, that I was looking at the Internet in Russia, we've seen a lot of changes. In 2010, for example, the Russian Internet wasn't really censored in any serious way, at least not compared to China. Recently, that's changed. I think recently we've seen the Russian authorities try to control the Internet, and I think in a lot of ways that reflects a fear that the Internet could become a political threat in Russia.
4: Now, do you think it's a fear driven by something happening within Russia, or just them watching what happened in, you know, Arab Spring, saying, "I don't want that happening." You know, just like China made this, you know, saw what happened with Gorbachev and said, "All right, we'll do economics first, politics later."
5: Well, I think governments around the world were spooked by the Arab Spring. There's no question of that. But I think in, in Russia's case, there were domestic factors as well. Specifically, in late 2011, early 2012. Tens of thousands of Russians were protesting on the streets, and social media played an important role in, in organizing those protests, and one of the figureheads of that protest movement was Alexei Navalny, who is basically grew to fame by being a blogger. So I, I think that they noticed that. <laughs> I think
4: that that, made that the, got their attention, yes.
5: I think that got their attention, and I think it made Russian authorities see the internet in a different way. I think previously they had thought, oh, okay, whatever, people can say what they want here, it's never going to really impact anything, and protest is only virtual, it will never lead to real-life action. And I think those protests showed that people were capable of actually going out onto the streets.
4: Now, because of your credentials, um, were you monitored at all? How freely were you able to talk with some of these people in, in those countries?
5: Well, I mean, the thing is, you never really know, right? You never really know who's monitoring you or who's True. following you. Um, but I think, you know, I think in, in in Cuba, everybody kind of has a sense of being monitored. That's just the the atmosphere on the ground. I mean, thankfully, I all I can say is that I'm just very happy that I was able to get this book done and make many trips to these countries and 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 finish my work because that's always a fear, right? That's always a fear right. that you're just never you're not going to be able to finish.
4: And and um. And, and and looking at um, going back to Cuba, so there is this paranoia and this starting to be discussion. I'm hearing a possibility of some changes coming about, mm-hmm. at least in the U.S. Cuban relations. For example, mm-hmm. um, Raúl Castro will actually be at that, I believe at the LAS meeting this mm-hmm. fall, and um, you know that the first time I think. You know, he has sat, uh, Castro has sat across from the U.S. president since the embargo. And you're going to start seeing some changes, um, at least, you know, bilateral. But I don't know what the but that would lead to engagement um, with the U.S. via the Internet. I, I know Obama's been trying to encourage, you know, Google, or some people have been trying to encourage you know, getting U.S. Internet facilities into Cuba. But you do have the whole hurdle of the embargo.
5: Yes. Well, I think that you're right. I mean, change does seem to be in the air in in, in Cuba. And the question is how much and how fast. There's definitely there's definitely something brewing in terms of the Internet. There's still a little bit of mystery about why Cuban connectivity is so low. And clearly, the embargo has not been helping matters, although Obama Obama actually has tried to loosen restrictions in that area. And we haven't seen much of a result. So it, it, it remains unclear how much of this is the U.S. and how much of it is Cuban authorities actually being wary of the Internet and not particularly wanting the Internet to run free in, in, in Cuba. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a bit complicated. And, and I think that I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that Cuban authorities will just allow people full access to the Internet with no controls. That seems unlikely to me.
4: And, um, and looking at what's going on in Hong Kong, um, what does that augur that there could be uh, further crackdowns? I mean, Hong Kong has a unique status, and it's not yes. Beijing. Um, but you know, seeing how you know social media has propelled it, and yes. how it, you know it, it almost appeared that it might get out of control, um, you know, is Beijing thinking we, we have to get tough, or is Beijing saying you know, stay cool, hold your cards? you know, we're still in control.
5: Well, I think we still have to see how this all ultimately plays out, but um, you know, it's true. Hong Kong and Beijing have completely different political cultures, and Hong Kong is... is it's not uncommon to see big protests in, in Hong Kong. I mean, not necessarily of the, on this scale that we've recently right. seen. One thing that I've noticed, though, in this case, is you can see that Beijing is nervous by the way that they are reacting to the internet, you know, for example, by blocking Instagram. I think, you know, I've, I've seen protests in Hong Kong, big protests around a decade ago, and that was a different era because there wasn't so much of this fear that this information and images would spread to the mainland. And now in the age of social media, protests aren't local in that way. So you definitely saw Beijing cracking down on the internet, after those protests, which, which signals that they are worried about something.
4: Uh, and I know Ben Franklin said if he only had pictures of kittens, you know, the revolution would have happened sooner. But um, <laughs> the um, you know, why Instagram, do you think?
5: Well, I think in, in that case, it was it was generally thought that because, because images from Hong Kong were coming in, into the mainland. That's why Instagram. But what's interesting, and this is my theory, is that there are probably – plenty of Mainland Chinese Instagram users who are more interested in looking at pictures of kittens or selfies or whatever anybody (laughs) looks at on Instagram, and by blocking Instagram, all it does is alert those people that something is being blocked and encourages those people. Exactly encourages those people to find ways to get around the Great Firewall. So that's and you see those kind of things happening a lot. You know, in 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 Turkey when Turkey blocked Twitter, you saw more tweets from Turkey. You know, I mean, so sometimes these things can backfire.
4: we, we talk about the stride in effect. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I actually yeah. looked at, at that lawsuit. Um and it turns out, you know, in the in the complaint it literally says, you know, it could be a who knows, it could be thousands of people who've looked at this and actually it turned out there's less than ten. But then mm-hmm. a- afterwards you know there was there were millions. And um, sure. so yeah and- it is Yes.
5: Sure, and also blocking something that people aren't necessarily using for politics just could actually end up politicizing those people.
4: Right. And uh, so your book um, has gotten some great reviews. I mean, and you look looked at some of the people who have, uh, who have endorsed it. Um, Tim Wu says one of the most, what's the quote here, one of the best research books he's written, he's read about the Internet. Here it is. This book is about 20 times better reported or written than any book ever written about the internet period um so to get such a a warm endorsement from tim you um definitely speaks volumes and um how how are everyday people been responding like your neighbors and your friends what type of feedback have you been getting
5: so I've been getting some good feedback. And actually, when I originally wrote this book, I really wanted to reach a different kind of audience. I wasn't necessarily interested in reaching the tech experts or the foreign policy experts. I wanted to reach, you know, the intelligent mainstream reader, you know, the person who kind of sees all these Internet headlines, doesn't really know what to make of them and, and kind of explain to them how this is affecting human beings. And I've gotten some good reactions from people like that, just from the person who said, well, your book, I never thought I'd be interested in a book like this, but I actually was or I actually understood this book. I, I hear that a lot sometimes from older people, they say, I thought I wouldn't understand your book, but I, I, I did understand it. Because, <laughs> you know, I think there's a certain generation sometimes that sees all these headlines about social media and Twitter and they just think it's this alien world when in reality, this is just actually a story about people.
4: Right. Now, um, one thing, is coming from the State Department background and dealing with, you know, these dissidents, Um, In in the age of Snowden, Uh, how, how, you know, particularly working with Secretary Clinton had definitely, you know, an Internet freedom agenda. How has it hurt us abroad?
5: Uh, you know, I, I was at the State Department before all the Snowden revelations broke out. Um, and I think, look, I think it is, it does make it a lot harder for the United States to talk about Internet freedom and digital diplomacy. I think there's no question. For example, in China, Chinese media has been having a, a field day with the, the right. Snowden revelations, Lord, yeah. you know? So, so yeah, I think this is going to be a real challenge going forward for the United States to really kind of I don't know, clarify their message and just rebuild trust in this area. And it's it's not something that affected me personally while I was there. But I think definitely for diplomats who are working on these issues, there's no question that there's increased distrust of the U.S. in this area. So what is your next project going to be? That's a great question. Um, this book took me so long. I was, you know, it recently <laughs> spanned 10 years. So, so I know that whatever the next book is going to be, it has to be something that I'm, I'm willing to stay with for a long time. So I don't, I don't know yet.
4: So people want to follow because you. Uh, we we're talking offline. I, I really enjoy your writing. and your tweeting, actually, particularly when it's about uh, Russian Ranger police.
5: Yes, I'll try and, to keep um, that up.
4: <laughs> if, if people want to follow you, I know your, your, your Twitter your
5: tweet, um, handle is Emily D. Parker. That's and, probably the best way. I think that's if you just use that, that would be great. That's a great way to just because I, I, I tweet out all my articles and, and things like that.
4: And is your focus going to continue to be technology or is it going to be more, you know, global affairs or everything?
5: Both. I've been also doing a lot of work. I've been doing a lot of work in Mexico recently, and I've been doing a lot of work. I don't know if you follow the maker movement, like the DIY maker movement. So right now um, I'm working with Mexico on a maker competition. Um, so I do things like that, too, that are not specifically about Internet descent.
4: And actually, there's one thing I wanted to plug. you doing something quite innovative. Um, Code for Country. Can you tell us
5: about that? Code for Country. So Code for Country is what I would describe more as a digital diplomacy project. Um, it it, 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 It gathered programmers in the U.S. and Russia to work on challenges to transparency. So it was this idea that, like, let's have ordinary citizens in the United States and Russia think about ways to use tech for transparency and open government. And I know that sounds maybe unimaginable now, but at the time, um, Russia was quite enthusiastic about this, this this project. So, you know, people did things like, you know, visualizing the assets of public officials and it was just a really good way for ordinary citizens in the U.S. and Russia to, to think about open government and transparency. You know, it's funny you mentioned It was, mentioned like a, it was that. a coding marathon, basically. It,
4: it, it, it's funny you mentioned visualizing the assets of, you know, of their officials. I heard that one of the biggest movements with the movers as a part of Arab Spring was when people could um, go to Google Maps and do street view and see the houses of their leaders.
5: Interesting. And, and that yeah.
4: was, was a disconnect. Wait a minute. I live in the Sabaya or the Slamo, or whatever mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and that's where
5: you live? Yeah. Um, well, that's. I think, and I think actually, it's interesting because there's a lot of people who are talking about open data and open government, and sometimes there's a lot of data out there, there's a lot of information out there, but somebody actually has to make it make sense to people, and that's right. what sometimes people do with with these visualizations.
4: Well, I want to thank you um, very much. The uh, the book is now I know who my comrades are: Voices from the Internet Underground, and uh, of course, you can look at in the index and find out who all the comrades are. <laughs> <But> the, <laughs> But um, she will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair, but definitely check out the book. It looks fascinating. As I mentioned, Jim Wu has raved about it, but it's got also great reviews all around. And you're a graduate from Brown. That's correct. I grew up in Providence. and uh, Oh, really? I, I actually um, I knew friends at Brown, and I, and I crashed a lot of Brown parties. But one year, um, I crashed a yearbook party. And um, people ask me to sign the yearbook. So I always, if I get people in that age range, I I tend to apologize in case I sign the yearbook. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. So if I want to thank you, uh, definitely check out the book. Um, Again, Twitter, Emily D. Parker. And I want to thank
2: you for joining us. It's a fascinating topic, and I commend you for your great work. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
6: The A in all-inclusive marketing means award-winning leadership, excellence in results, as well as an A rating by the Better Business Bureau. For reach, engagement, and conversion, it's all-inclusive marketing. Reserve a free consultation today at allinclusivemarketing.com slash radio.
8: MarketingINC.com is one of the fastest-growing, full-service digital marketing agencies in the country, specializing in providing results-driven online marketing solutions. Internet Marketing Inc.'s passionate team prides themselves on staying ahead of marketing trends to create and implement campaigns that get more traffic to your website, gain positive brand awareness, and drive conversions. If you are looking for a data-driven approach to online marketing and advertising, call Internet Marketing Inc. today at 866-563-0620 or visit internetmarketinginc.com.
6: So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at Mach speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com.
7: at BruceClay.com.
2: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly. Um, I'd like to read a passage to
3: you. Red-tailed hawks build their nest on tall buildings all over New York City, but only one nest has a nine-year-old girl living in it her name is audrey um let me introduce you to the author of audrey obi scott wade who is, also has a hit um animated series right now on um cable both here and in uh, all, all over the world actually um called she's obi are you with us i am good morning good morning thanks for joining us and um Obi, one thing that's interesting, and you look at some of the work that you've done in your career um, Julius and Friends, you know, working with the Paul Frank Monkey to create an animated series online. Um, Shizao is both what, through cable and over the web in different countries. And, um, and then Audrey, you were able to self publish. Um, how, imp- how important has the web been to content creators like yourself?
7: unbelievable (laughs) um it's you know it is what i do now and it has been for a while uh julius and friends that i created with paul frank was the first kids and family internet series and um it uh, ended up in a lot of film festivals including sundance and won awards but it was uh, 26 episodes uh and the monkey was voiced by Jason Schwartzman. So we put together an incredible production that was distributed by Mondo Media up in San Francisco. And Mondo has become one of the top, if not the top um, distributors of internet programming, especially in animation. Um, now jumping ahead to She's out is produced digitally. It's done in flash animation. And the entire production was done over the internet, because I'm here in LA, one of our partners is in Canada, another one is in Australia, and the studio is in Malaysia. So everything was handled digitally, it was an international co-production. And once the show was completed, after about two and a half years of production, it it is currently being broadcast traditionally over the airwaves, um, through cable, and through online portals. For example, if you go to Finland or Australia, you, you watch it digitally. In Australia, it's uh, delivered to homes on, through the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, on one of their digital channels. So it, everything, for me, is digital. So tell us a little bit about Shizao. Um, about Shizhou is a 26-episode animated series for kids 6 to 11. It's a comedy about a boy who accidentally becomes a female superhero. And it was on the air here in the United States on a network called The Hub, which was a cable channel that has since been rebranded into the Discovery Family channel. Uh, But Shizhou's really found a home online on YouTube. Uh, All 26 episodes are on YouTube, and... um, it's uh, building a following in different countries. Right now, it's on the air in Italy. And Italy is having a similar reaction to it that we had here because in the United States, it proved fairly, con- you know, uh, it, it, there was a bit of a controversy <laughs> with uh, some folks not liking the fact that this little boy uh, works as a girl superhero and then other folks at the other end of the spectrum absolutely loving it and everything in between that you can imagine. Right. Right. So- happening in Italy currently so the Italian fans have been contacting me with um, great stories
3: and, and so um, how, how do you manage a backlash like that as a
7: creator you don't <laughs> you just kind of <laughs> with it and uh, wait for it to pass because it always does and um, you just kind of there's there's nothing you can do and, and, and so has,
3: um, has it been picked up for another season
7: not yet Um, There has been talk about it. There's been talk about um, possibly uh, She's Out movie. I do know that we are doing a series of comic books that will start uh, coming out next year. Uh, I think the first one's coming out around um, St. Patrick's Day. And um, there's now She's Out merchandise online that people can find through the She's Out community Facebook page.
3: Where you could tap into the whole limelight crowd and make it she zombie. But um, <laughs> I
7: think that's a good idea. <laughs> so, your,
3: your, your latest creation is Audrey, which I, I kind of led off with, with by talking about her. Tell us about what led you to write this book and, and the experience of self publishing.
7: Audrey is spelled O D D R Y. And that's because her story is a little odd, it's a little different. Uh, She is a nine-year-old girl who lives in a hawk's nest on the top ledge of a New York apartment building across the street from Central Park, and because she was raised by hawks, she can speak hawk, and she can speak other animal languages because there's a lot of urban (coughs) in Central Park, and um, Audrey's never never met another human being. Um, She is human she secretly wants to meet another person, um, but... um, They think that if Aubrey wanted to meet people, humans, that they would take her away um, and put her in foster care or something like that and they'd never see her again. So they don't... She's never been allowed to talk to another human being until today, the day that the story begins. Uh, Her life is about to change forever. And uh, what inspired the story was a true story, actually, about a male hawk in New York who lives on a building on Central Park East. His name is Pale Male. And I really got intrigued by the fact that there was all this urban wildlife in New York and that there were people trying to take down that nest. And then there were other people who ended up saving the nest, and it's still there, and he's still alive. He's I think he's 25 years old now. Wow. And I went to New York, and uh, joined the people in Central Park who uh, watched the nest through telescopes. It was uh, really fun and really wonderful people were there. And as I was looking through the telescope and I was watching the, you know, pale male and his mate in their nest, I wanted to peek down inside the nest because I was wondering what was in it. And it suddenly dawned on me, wow, there could be anything in there. Maybe right. there's a little kid living in there. Who knows? And that's how Audrey was born. Wow. And but the nest, is, is it rain controlled Pardon?
3: <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Important point in New York. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's got to be. So, um, you decided to self-publish. What was that like?
7: Well, it was a lot of work. It was. Uh, so far, it's been a great experience. Um, it took me ten years to write the book. I did it oh. often in between animated projects. Um, I would. Put it on the back burner and then bring it out, and I would, you know, throw away whole drafts and start over. And um, I finally got the story that I really wanted to tell, and I just decided that I didn't want to, I didn't want to submit the book to people who um, maybe didn't want to tell the same story that I wanted to tell. So I thought, well, here we are in this digital age. Um, you know, self publishing is—it's right there. It's a tool to use, and so. I self-published through uh, CreateSpace, which is an Amazon company, and I had all the services I needed there. I had uh, editors and then um, my illustrator for the book is a Japanese artist, a young woman named Yoshi Yoshirino, and she is a fan of Shizou and had created tons of Shizou fan art, and she still does to this day, and I post all of her work on the Shizou community fan page, and I um, I loved her work so much I asked her if she would illustrate Audrey and she did and I couldn't be happier with the work. Now,
3: um, one of your earliest um, experiences was working with someone of a legend in broadcast and content um, and who most of us know by the, the sweater he wore. Tell us, tell us about that.
7: You must be talking about Mr. Rogers. Yes. I worked for WQED Pittsburgh, but I was in the West Coast office. We had an office out here where we were doing um, post-production for all the National Geographic specials. We were doing lots of preschool programming for Fox Kids at the time. Um, We were in production on Where in the World is Carmen San Diego?" So when I would go to Pittsburgh, um, I would have opportunities to talk to Mr. Rogers and uh, actually ended up developing an idea that we took him that he really, really liked. And the experience was otherworldly, is the best way to describe it. Mr. Rogers has a countenance or had a countenance about him that was unlike anyone else I've ever met, really. You just have to experience to know what I'm talking about. But it was, you just kind of felt like all the stress left your body and you were just so safe with him
3: interesting we'll talk more about that in a moment but first we got take a break for our sponsors we you listen to cyber law and business report we'll be right back with Obie Scott Wade after these messages
2: stay tuned for more of the cyber law and business report after this brief recess for our sponsors
8: or visit internetmarketinginc.com.
6: ShipStation helps online retailers ship orders faster. It's so easy to set up and use. ShipStation gives you tools to automatically import, manage, and ship your orders in the most cost-efficient way. Save money with the best USPS rates possible, as well as a free USPS account. ShipStation integrates with all the most popular e-commerce platforms and shipping carriers get shipping done no matter where you sell or how you ship webmasterradio.fm listeners get an additional 30 days free after the free 30-day trial go to shipstation.com slash webmaster radio now shipping nirvana starts here internetmarketingninjas.com is the online dojo of the highly trained and skilled internet marketing ninjas disavow documents reconsideration requests panda and paywin penalties let our superior seo ninjas confront all of your link related issues the internet marketing ninjas are equipped to master any marketing exercise content creation authorship link building ppc and more plus build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at internetmarketingninjas.com.
2: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm
3: and we're back welcome to our neighborhood um, this is Bennett Kelly with Cyber Law and Business Report we're talking to Obi Scott Wade who's the author of Audrey and the creator of Shizou. Um he was just recounting a story about his work with Mr. Rogers
7: um, so Obi, I, I cut you short <laughs> was there anything you wanted to add to that? To well I do want to thank you know Donna Mitroff, who was my boss at the time at WQED Pittsburgh, the home of Mr. Rogers, for giving me my break in entertainment, she gave me my first job, and really believed in me as a, a creative person, and um, made me believe that I could, you know, do it. And so that was that was the start for me. So I'm very appreciative to QED and Donna, and um, I'm now serving on the Blue Ribbon Panel for the Fred Rogers Scholarship. Um, every year, uh, Mr. Rogers Foundation gives, gives out three scholarships through the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, and um, I get to participate in that and um, review the applications and, and help choose the winners. So that, I'm very- sounds, that sounds
3: great. You know, I've actually you know I know Donna, and, uh, and although I never met um, Fred Rogers, but um, you know it sounds like it's a great opportunity because they're both very
7: grounded people and. And Donna Mitroff and her husband, Ian Mitroff, have just written a book about Mr. Rogers' philosophies and how they apply to the workplace. And it's an awesome book. Um, I, I think corporations should um, should take on a lot of Mr. Rogers' philosophies. It would be great.
3: We see Tim Cook in a sweater. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so one of the things, you, one of the projects you worked on that I, I really find um, and just hilarious and uh, just a great work is um, Al Roach Insectigator <laughs> and tell us about that and, and what was it like to work with James Garner
7: Al Roach Private Insectigator was a dream come true and because of getting to work with James Garner it's about a, a colony of insects that leave, live in the weeds behind the Hollywood sign and they mirror The golden era of tinsel town so uh you've got characters like beetle davis and humphrey bugart and marilyn Monroe, and um they go to groundworms chinese theater it's old hollywood with bugs and james garner is the lead detective in this town and it was a blast um we had the most amazing cast we had michelle forbes as the femme fatale uh we have freddie rodriguez from six feet under and Working with Mr. Garner was um, one of the best experiences of my life. I grew up loving his work, and when I finally got to meet him, uh, <laughs> I met him in the parking lot before we went into the studio, and I was like, kind of nervous. And I was like, oh, good morning, Mr. Garner, and he's like, oh, please, call me Jim. And I knew he meant it and we hit it off and we had a, a, a fantastic day and the the short came out great It was we produced it for Turner Classic Movies and uh, I just had a great time working with them as well, Charlie Tabish over there was awesome but we got done with the record because this was an animated property uh, CGI, black and white animation and um, Mr. Garner James, sorry, Jim um, asked us if we could recommend a place for breakfast and somebody started recommending these very kind of trendy hoity toity places in the area on Melrose Avenue. And he said, no, d- is there an IHOP? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, yeah, there's actually one right around the corner. I wish I'd gone with him, but I had to stay and record other people. So it was awesome. And, uh, you know, that, that short, uh, aired on Turner classic movie channel and, uh, was featured in several, uh, film festivals and actually won some awards. So, um, uh, it, it was great it's it's online as well if you you can google it,
3: so. it yeah, it's at, on your website at obico.com that's right and uh, so um, Audrey is one, I was teasing you earlier um, that you, you are a sellout um, but not in the traditional sense of the word you've actually sold out on your first printing of Audrey
7: Yes, um, the bookstores that are carrying Audrey, um, a couple of them have sold out and have reordered, you know, larger batches of the books. Um, but because the book sells on Amazon.com, um, it is and it's printed on demand.
2: Okay. I don't,
7: I don't think you really can completely sell out unless Amazon runs out of paper, and I don't think that's going to happen. I haven't heard that of happening. Yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the sky is not upside down or anything like that, so I think they still have plenty. So, um, And one thing I wanted to highlight was that proceeds from this book um, are going to certain charities.
7: Um, which charities and, and, and why is that? The San Francisco Center for the Pre- Prevention of Child Abuse. It's uh, one of the organizations, um, and we've been fortunate enough to um, send... Uh, our first payment to them uh we're also supporting stop abuse now um and the reason we I chose those organizations is because um there are some difficulties that one of the characters goes through in the book um that kids will identify as abusive and um it obviously you know well, I'm not going to give anything away but you know uh, one of the reviews on Amazon talked about how you know kids in real life have to go through difficult things and most kids books and media don't ever address those things but Audrey has done so in a way that is kid friendly and child appropriate and affirming and affirming yes and and um, and courageous and um, it's for kids six to 11 and um, the book itself I'm really pleased with the way that it, it it came out in its design. I just have to give props to Wolf, who designed the book and the website Auudrey dot com. And the cover is just spectacular. Yeah. Uh, that's Mayo Yoshi Reno, the artist from Japan, and the illustrations inside are also by her. Now, the thing about the cover is it
3: has half of a the top half of a face, and i'm, I'm I've seen people and I understand a lot of people are doing is holding it up on on their face themselves and taking a selfie with the bottom half of their face and the top half of it being Audrey.
7: Yeah, they're getting audrey (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A little boy uh, sent that to me and I put it on the Audrey Facebook page and um, then other parents started sending me pictures um, with their kids doing it. But I I have to give credit to Greg Escalante, my dear friend, who is um, the godfather of the custom culture art movement the owner of Juxtapose magazine and the Copro Gallery in Los Angeles. He consulted me on the cover of the book. I had some original artwork done for it, and he said, You know what? You just need to have those big eyes kind of peeking up from the bottom, like she's looking in a window. Right. Said, You're right. And um, that's what people have said to me when, you know, they talk about finding the book in a bookstore. You know, it's like, it was the eyes. We saw it on the shelf. It looks like wow. she's up at you. So Greg, uh, that was a million-dollar idea, and now all the kids are um, getting audrey eyes. And uh, adults, too. I just got one from uh, a woman. Uh, I can't remember where she's from, but I, she said, Will you post my picture? And I said, of course. <laughs> we're on radio. We don't get that. But, um,
3: <laughs> well, it's time to put my sweater back on. So we only got a couple minutes left, Obi. If people
7: want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? I think their first talk would be com. O-D-D-R-Y dot com there's links there to the book there's information about the book there's information about um, uh, my company and um, also obco.com is a good place to visit great well I want to thank you it's been great having you
3: and you going to do a sequel? yes I'm outlining it right now great I may want to have it set in North Korea because you get a lot of publicity that way but uh But that's all we have for this week. Next week, we're going to have our annual Heroes Reunite, Dan Tynan and Brendan Christensen, for our annual wrap-up of the year, our Heroes and Zeros edition. So don't miss that. It's always a lot of fun. Um, Let us know ahead of time who you think are the Heroes and Zeros, and maybe we'll mention them during the show. But uh, I want to thank Obi. Um, it's, It's been a pleasure having you. And Emily Parker as well um, for her brilliant book. It was nice talking with her. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for um, listening to us today. And, of course, our esteemed and wonderful producer, Brasco, for all his help today. Um, and she'll join us next week for our year-end segment, Heroes and Zeros, um, a cyber law business report wrap-up of 2014. Be safe. And, of course, adjourned. Bye-bye.